Welcome to Love Takes Action. I'm your host, Ellen Adair, and I have the privilege of speaking with people across the country who have faced adversity, conquered their fears, and in the process made unexpected and extraordinary impacts on their communities. Join me as we delve into these amazing stories and meet the people who are changing the world by putting love into action. Love Takes Action is brought to you by New York Life, helping people build better futures since 1845. Thank you for joining us today as we talk with Candlin Matman. Back in 2014, while working in China, her husband suddenly died. At the time, her daughter was two years old. Obviously, this completely uprooted their life. Thanks to the connections fostered at a grief group in Salt Lake City, their lives began to change. Sometimes it feels like a dream. I'm really proud of how Adair can communicate with the world. My daughter is going to say her daddy's name. She's going to know her daddy's stories. Grief is like riding out a storm on the ocean and hopefully take you somewhere cool. So the story starts when you were living in China. Will you tell us what took you and your family abroad? Yeah, my husband and I were kind of in a tough financial situation. He had some long-term health problems and couldn't work. So it was just me and my tiny little teacher salary, and I took a position teaching second grade at an American international school in Changchun that paid a really comparable salary but also covered all of our living expenses. Mm. So our goal was to be able to pay off debt and get more financially stable and be able to travel the world while we were at it. Tickets from Changchun to Tokyo, for example, were like $400 for a family of three. Where else did you get to go? We did not get to go anywhere. He got sick six weeks after we got there. That part was an epic failure. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that soon. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, was that your first sort of expat experience or had you lived abroad before? Nope, nope. I was born and raised in Salt Lake City and so was he. I had had a couple adventurous years in Boise, Idaho. And that was the entirety of my life experience up until then. Wow, that was a huge undertaking for you at the it time. It was, was it really was. Shift. And what was it like with a two-year-old? You know, Adair was such a great two-year-old. I mean, it was crazy because two-year-olds are crazy, but she was just along for the ride. As long as she had her daddy or me, she was fine. She was happy. We talked a lot about what was going to happen. She had her precious toys and she just thought the whole thing was an adventure. I didn't realize it was only six weeks, but for those six weeks, how were you settling in? Did you like living abroad? Yeah, I really loved it. Professionally, the teaching experience was really unique and I was really enjoying the resources that I had and the expectations of me. I had I had 10 kids and a full-time aide and just was pretty much handed a blank slate to create what I wanted to create and I loved that. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. And the community at the school was really wonderful. They were really welcoming. I was starting to make friends with the local Chinese staff members at the school who had kind of taken me under their wing. We'd figured out where to shop. You know, we'd figured out where to walk and what was interesting. And it really was just like waking up for an adventure every day. Like, we truly, truly loved it. I spent most of my life in Utah. It was just such a shock to see how differently people lived and to get to figure out how they were doing it. 
So we were all having a really great time. My husband Isaac and I, we'd only had one car living in the States. And of course, in a city of 12 million, you don't need a car. So Isaac was going out on adventures and being able to walk places or take the bus or take a cab with a dare. So we were really getting comfortable and excited. I was feeling really good about the choice we had made. It was feeling like the right thing. It's one of the things that's so wonderful about travel is seeing exactly the way that you said, seeing the way that other people live. It gives you so much more context for what it means to be human and therefore like what it also means to be specifically ourselves. Exactly. And Isaac had had the opportunity to travel quite a bit with his parents growing up. He'd seen a lot of the world and I hadn't. I got to grow up in the mountains in a tent, which is its own kind of wonderful. That's what we did for mm -hmm. vacations. But I wanted so badly for my daughter to grow up knowing that there was more than one way to be. And, you know, when you are in a foreign country, going to the grocery store is a lesson in how many different ways there are to be a human. That's what I wanted for her. That's what we wanted for her. Yeah. I mean, you've used this word a few times, but it's a fun adventure also. Like, yes, uh -huh. going to a store in a, in a foreign country. Really uh -huh. Yep. How do we buy blankets in this country? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Took us three days. <laughs> Where do they sell those things? Yep, exactly. Amazing. You've alluded to this a little bit, but if I may, what were the circumstances surrounding your husband's death? Yeah, so Isaac had um, a mood disorder of probably 20 years, a mood disorder that was well regulated with medication. And we got food poisoning at the Moon Festival party that my school put on, mm. which food poisoning in China is not unusual. They kind of tell you to go prepared to deal with that. And we all got food poisoning. We all got sick. What we think happened is that Isaac got so dehydrated that his regular maintenance medications became intensified in his bloodstream. So he started hallucinating. He got really lethargic. He knew who I was. He knew my name was Candolin, but he kept saying, I don't know if you're my Candolin. He kept asking, your daughter's really cute. How old is she? And when I tell you that Isaac's entire dream in life was to be a dad, and that girl was his whole world, and to hear him say, your daughter is really cute, just broke my heart. So working with our psychiatrist here and the doctors we were able to connect with in China, they put him on an antipsychotic and something happened there that it was too much and it basically started sending him into a coma. So he kind of slowly declined into a coma over a couple of weeks. And then the third week, we took him to the hospital and he never woke up. He was in the hospital for a week. He was in the ICU for four days. They did three days of continual renal therapy, trying to clean his blood. It made no difference. And at that point, I decided that it was time. It was time to, to stop trying to keep him alive and let him go. Um, the quality of life that he would have been looking at if he had recovered at that point was just horrific. So we removed all of, all of the things keeping him alive, and I signed a DNR, and he passed away that night. Wow. That, oh, that's incredibly tragic. Yeah. That part of that involved him not recognizing your daughter anymore. And yeah, and like that particular kind of tragedy when the person that you know, isn't even there in front of you anymore. Yeah. One of the things that's hardest for me is that I don't know when our last moment was. Like, I really don't know when the last time was that he saw me. I can't put my finger on it. You know, I'd been thinking, I'm going to have to send him home. This is the end of our dream. I, it had not occurred to me in this five weeks that he was sick that we were facing something that serious. So we didn't get to say goodbye. I don't, I don't know what the last time was that he remembers kissing me goodbye as I went to work. That's rough. 
yeah, when our last moment was is such a such a beautiful and heartbreaking concept. And what also occurs to me is the amount of mystery that shrouded everything at that time period, also given what you shared about not being able to communicate with the doctors and having to piece together what you think happened is really hard. So how did you handle things in the immediate aftermath being in a foreign country? Well, it was really fortunate that the community of the school had pulled together in a really wonderful way. Also, my mom had been able to fly out three weeks before Isaac died. I was hoping she could nurse him back to health. And if not, the plan was for her to take him home and for me to wrap up some sort of commitment, you know, while he went home to recuperate. And then when he went into the hospital, Isaac's cousin was able to fly in the next day. He already had a visa for China. And then his dad and brother were there for the last few days. So he died very early Monday morning, and their tickets to leave were Wednesday morning. And I said, okay, we have 48 hours. I'm going home. Nobody is leaving me here. Yeah. I can't be here without my support system. So we spent Monday kind of arranging for his body. We went to the crematorium and saw his body and said goodbye and signed all the paperwork. And my mom and Adair and I went back to the apartment. Well, I told my mom I was gonna pack. I ended up taking a four hour nap with Adair. So I was just beyond exhausted. So I took a nap and then we started packing. Tuesday, I went back to school and saw my class and said goodbye. Nobody had told them that Isaac had died. So I got to break that news to my seven-year-olds. I mean, probably I was better prepared to do it than anyone else, but right. it wasn't fun for me. So I showed my family around the school and introduced them to all the people that had been helping along the way. Yeah, we got up at 5 a.m. on Wednesday and the school van picked us up and took us to the airport. And it took 29 hours to get home from Chengchun to Salt Lake City. I don't even know how long he'd been dead by the time we landed in Salt Lake because, you know, the days are different. There's the dateline in there. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe four days, but we landed in Salt Lake at like midnight to a lot of our family there. And oh. we just zombied. You, you can imagine, we just zombied. We'd been stuck in San Francisco for nine hours. We had a nine hour mm -hmm. layover in San Francisco and I was this close to renting a car and just driving home because I, I was just so desperate to be home. My mother wouldn't let me. She wouldn't let me rent a car and drive home. Well, and I walked into the airport and just wanted to kiss the ground that I was walking mm. on. I could hear English in an American accent over the intercom and I could smell French fries. And like I said, I loved China. I truly have no regrets about what we did, but being in San Francisco was like, it was the promised land for that minute. And then I realized how long we had to sit. So yeah, we got home at midnight, I wanna say on Thursday, and I literally like carried my daughter directly into it. It was Isaac and I's bed. We had left it in my parents' guest room and slept for 14 hours. You said that I could imagine it, which is charitable for you. I mean, you described it so well <laughs> that I feel like I can try to imagine it, but it's almost an unfathomable thing that you went through. And I'm so appreciative to you for being willing to talk about such a hard period in your life. I've really learned that people like to hear about hard things because it makes them feel less alone. And that's helped me be really comfortable sharing my perspective. Also, sometimes mm. it feels like it didn't happen to me. You know, sometimes, it, I mean, it was nine years ago almost. Sometimes it feels like a dream, like it was someone else's life. And then I will be telling the story and I will remember all of a sudden what it felt like to hold my sobbing two-year-old. Oh, mm. 
I appreciated in your story that just coming back to the United States was able to be a sort of a solace for you, because I was certainly imagining that, you know, I mean, obviously losing a close family member is one of the biggest upheavals in any human life. Mm -hmm. But in your case, it also had this ripple effect of changing everything about where you lived and what you did. It uprooted everything for you. But was that actually sort of helpful to be able to completely change the environment of the place where it happened and come somewhere else? Yes and no. I think yes in a lot of ways. Like I could leave that trauma behind. But it was also coming back to a place where Isaac is around every corner of Salt Lake City for me. I was still finding like his gum wrappers in the nightstand in my parents' spare room because it hadn't been long enough that we had like lost those pieces of him. So yes and no. It also, I don't know, sometimes it felt like a break from reality, like I said, where this thing happened and it was so far away. I think the thing that was comforting about being back in the United States was that it didn't matter what happened. I knew I could navigate it. Mm. I had two Chinese teachers aides who pretty much just traded off being with me around the clock. I was completely dependent on them to explain to me how the medical system worked and what needed to be done next and what was the nurse asking for, because it's very different than my experience in the United States. So I was just, I felt so dependent and so powerless so often in China. And mm -hmm. when I got back to the United States, I thought, okay, literally, like, it doesn't matter what happens. We're here where I can communicate with the people in charge, you know, and I know how to access resources and I know what to do. Yeah. That aspect of it, obviously, is part of what made the experience that already would be the worst part of any number of people's lives just even more difficult. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you returned home and you were staying with your family then? Is that mm -hmm. what happened? Yeah. So my parents have a big house and they were really generous. And they said, of course, you're going to stay here as long as you need to. So they actually carved out two bedrooms for us in the basement I ended up kind of sharing. I slept in one room with Adair, and then I said, the other one is my living room, because it was really mm -hmm. hard as an adult woman to feel like I had lost all of my independence. The silver lining of this horrific thing, you know, here it is November, I'm a teacher, I can't find work at this point. Mm -hmm. So the silver lining is that I'm going to stay home. I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom to my kid, and I'm going to get to enjoy at least the next nine months of just being at home with my daughter and figuring this out. And that lasted six weeks. I can't be a stay-at-home mom. I'm not good at it. So by New Year's, I was enrolled in a master's program, and I had decided to continue to live with my parents while I pursued a master's. So that like gave me something to do as a human, as an individual, but allowed me to give Adair the huge amount of time and attention that she needed to be okay. So I lived with my parents for about two and a half years. Hmm. What was your master's in? Educational leadership. Hmm. So working in like school administration and curriculum. What was it like living with your family in the aftermath of your husband passing? It was wonderful and it was terrible. My family is really, really good at showing up for people physically. If you need a meal, if you need a babysitter, if you need to demo a bathroom or, you know, run errands, they are there for you. But they're not so good with feelings then. We've, we've all come a long way not so good with feelings and kind of emotional support. So they were radically supportive in every way they knew how, but they also didn't know what to do with my feelings. I, I remember sitting in the hallway at one point, just breaking down, crying, and I don't remember what, who knows what triggered it, but I'm just sobbing sitting in my parents' hallway. And I remember my mom sitting down next to me, 
my sweet mom, I don't want this to sound critical because I'm nothing but grateful for what my parents have done for me. Mm -hmm. My mom is a homebody and an introvert who does not like change. And she put herself on a plane to China. My mom wouldn't have even wanted to go to China with a tour guide, right? Like that is not her comfort mm -hmm. zone. And she put herself mm -hmm. on that plane and she put herself in cabs and was so generous to me. But she just kind of sat next to me and patted my back in this hallway and said, it's okay, don't cry, don't cry, it's okay. And I thought, nothing is okay, nothing is okay. I have every reason to cry. Mm -hmm. But we all had to work really hard to get comfortable with our feelings. And we're gonna talk about this and we are not going to hide our feelings and we're gonna feel everything, every brutal, nasty feeling. We're gonna open this wound and we're gonna let the fresh air in and we're gonna let it heal. So whenever I was in doubt about, should I hide this from my daughter? Should I hide this from my parents? You know, should I hide this from the boy that I'm dating? Right. I just kept thinking, no, no, my daughter is gonna say her daddy's name. She's going to know her daddy's stories and she's not gonna have to do that. And I'm gonna make this better for her. Yeah, well, if I may, you are very good at expressing the things that you have gone through, that you are going through. And I mean, perhaps you're like, well, yes, I put in my 10,000 hours of <laughs> practicing expressing very difficult things. Thank you. I, I have practice. <laughs> so how did you come in contact with The Sharing Place? I found The Sharing Place online. I'm a big time researcher and over analyzer. So I think I'd been in Salt Lake about 48 hours before I like opened up the laptop and was like, how do I help grieving children, <laughs> right? I'm doing all my research. And I came across the model of grief support groups and found the sharing place that was located here in Salt Lake and called them up and said, hi, I have a two-year-old who needs you. And they said they didn't take kids under the age of three. Their kind of approach is that kids don't have enough language to participate in that kind of group sharing model mm. until they're three. And I also went looking for a therapist for her. Same thing. Every therapist I talked to was like, they just don't have the language until they're three. And I felt very strongly and very intuitively that she needed something, that it didn't matter that she wasn't three yet. So I sought out a therapist for myself that I was really upfront with her that I was looking for some help parenting through grief as well as managing my own grief. Mm -hmm. So we did that for the first year after Isaac died. And then I called back to the sharing place. And in that year that I had been waiting, I had found a local widows group that had all lost their husbands and wives about two to three years before I did and had really kind of gone through this life experience of picking their lives back up together. And they were holding meetups a couple times a month. And I was going to those, which was a huge help because I could see them on the other side of where I was at. Mm -hmm. And they all had such wonderful glowing things to say about the sharing place. Every angle was like, this is good for kids. So just as soon as she turned three, I called back and started the process of getting Adair enrolled. So you mentioned the group sharing model. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what the sessions are like at the sharing place? Yeah, so they group children by age. Every group opens with a circle where you all sit around and you can see each other and they have a talking stick that they use to make sure that they're learning to listen to the speaker. And it starts with an adult modeling and they go around and take turns and they say their name and they say the name of their person and they say how their person died. So I kind of, obviously you have to coach a three-year-old a little bit, you know, so Adair would say, I'm Adair and my daddy died because he had too much medicine in his body. Mm. 
Parents aren't supposed to be in these groups, but Adair had such intense separation anxiety that I attended for a while to kind of help ease that. It's just an out-of-body experience to listen to three-year-olds say, my daddy had cancer. My daddy died from cancer. Mm -hmm. My baby sister died because she couldn't breathe when she was born. You hear all of these things, but I think instinctively it feels harsh, but it helps them accept it. And then there's usually some sort of question that they discuss around Christmas time. You know, what's a favorite present you got from your person? What do you wish you could give your person? Mm -hmm. Kind of these prompts to get them thinking and talking about it. And that is it for kind of the formal session. And then they move into playtime and the Sharing Place volunteers set up, they have a fabulous collection of toys and games and, you know, they'll have their art supplies set up. And the idea is that the kids go play and the adults join them and kind of facilitate those conversations. I know that Adair spent a lot of time playing house with a baby doll whose daddy had died, mm. you know, kind of talking through, I'm going to put my baby to bed. Her daddy can't do that because he's dead. And while that is all going on with the kids, their parents or their grown-up, some person, some loving caretaker in their life is meeting in a separate room also with a couple of volunteers. And they do something similar. They do an opening circle and then it's kind of a free-form conversation of what people want to talk about. That all goes down for 90 minutes twice a month. Did you also play with Adair or the other kids during this sort of unstructured play time? No, no, I didn't. I mean, I, I kind of observed a little bit in the beginning until we could convince her to separate from me. But no, they really tried to, I don't want it to sound secretive because that's not the point. And I recognize this as somebody who is a professional in early childhood education. But kids need space to feel their grief away from their person. I think a lot of kids hide some of their feelings from their parents, right? Adair knew I was sad. Sometimes she pretended not to be sad so that she didn't want to hurt me. What changes did you notice in Adair after a half year at the sharing place and then obviously after the couple of years that she was there? When we first started, Adair had an incredibly difficult time separating from me. She had kind of her small inner circle that I could leave her with my mom, my dad, you know, her aunts and uncles. But even then, I had to like be very careful to say, this is the plan. Mom is leaving to do this, and then I'm going to do this. You're going to do that, and I will be back by this time. And the poor child taught herself to read the clock and like understand the concept of time by two and a half because mom said she would be back by four, and we're going to be sitting at the front window at 345 watching because mom said she'd be back. Wow. It was very, very difficult to be gone for more than a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. That was where we were at going into the sharing place. And like I said, they don't usually let parents sit in on the kids' activities. So I would say it took about six months before Adair could do the entire thing by herself, the whole circle and the playtime while I stayed upstairs. For that first six months, I would just kind of sit and quietly try to not engage with her. But by six months, she was excited. She was excited to go. Mm. She was excited to see her friends. And she would tell me, so-and-so's mommy is dead. So-and-so's daddy is dead. They know what it's like. Like, you know. Yeah. And Adair was a very articulate, is a, a very articulate child. I wonder where she gets that. It might be a little genetic, but thank you, because I'm really proud of how Adair can communicate with the world. It's one of the things I'm most proud about. So yes, I'll take all the credit. You deserve it. <laughs> so by six months, she was happily going off. And when it was time for me to come down to kind of close out the group, she'd be so excited to see me and to show me what she was doing and was starting to have an easier time with separating from me. And by a year, we didn't have any issues separating either at the sharing place or elsewhere. I mean, the normal four-year-old stuff, right? Of like wanting to know what the plan was. But I was able to like 
leave her to go on overnights, you know, so she could go sleep over at her auntie's house. Mm. And by the time she got to kindergarten a year after that, it was still rough, but she only cried for a couple minutes and then was able to have a good day. At one year in the sharing place, she just took so much pride in, she felt a real sense of ownership. Like this was her thing. And look, this is my picture of my daddy. And you could tell that she just thought of it as, as a place that belonged to her and her friends. And she felt just supremely comfortable and would ask to go. I would get really mad when like, oh, sorry, we're only going to sharing place once this month. What changes did you notice in yourself also from being able to go there? The thing I noticed the most about myself was I had been doing so well, right? I'd been going to therapy and I'd been studying for my master's and I, I was budgeting and not living inside of my means and doing okay. And I had so much physical support but I didn't realize how alone I felt until I started going to the sharing place mm. emotionally. Like I mm -hmm. just didn't realize you can have a hundred people in the world who want to take care of you, but none of them had ever been widowed at 28. You know, the only person I really knew in my life who'd been widowed was my grandmother. She was in her fifties and she was the only person that never tried to tell me what I should be feeling. Like she was the only one, she was the closest one to, to my life experience. And she was like, nope, I know this is different and I'm here and I love you, but I've got no idea what it's like. Yeah. I was 28 when Isaac died. In this situation, here I am grieving my best friend, right? The person I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Yeah. I was grieving my child's parent because it is different than divorce, right? Like I could see the pain that she was experiencing and out ahead of her. And I was doing all of that. And then at the same time, I was having to help my kid navigate like the most traumatic thing I could imagine for her. Yeah. And it's so hard to like try to split your head in two places and say, wait, whose grief is more important today? Like who gets to take priority today in their trauma and what they need? So at the sharing place, I could see other parents doing that same thing. They weren't all widowed. There were quite a few moms in the group who had lost babies. But we'd all understood what it was like to be isolated and alone. And we all understood what it was like to be going through this intensely traumatic thing while trying to take care of our kids and get them through the traumatic thing. That was it. It was a sense of solidarity. Right. Yes. Knowing that we're not alone is one of the most important things that we could ever learn as human beings. And it seems like The Sharing Place has built a really vibrant community of support. They really have. Like, I, I still feel drawn to them to this day. Nine years later, I took a break from volunteering because I had a baby and because COVID. Both reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> but I was even telling my husband the other day that it's time for us to start thinking about how we can fit that into our lives because I do, I feel pulled in. And on a similar note, my sweet dad, who didn't have any language to discuss with me, grief, who I remember him saying to me, Isaac and my dad for about three weeks and I was looking for a therapist and I remember him saying, but why? You're doing so well. You, you don't need mm. a therapist. Like therapy is for broken people and you're not broken. You're doing great. He just had no understanding and he's come so far that when I stopped volunteering at the sharing place and he found out that they were short, they were not going to be able to run as many groups as they had planned because they were short adults. He volunteered and he is now a facilitator and has been for oh, three or four years mm. and loves it so much and gets so much out of it. That's incredible. And it's helped him unpack a lot of things that he's been through in his life, which I think those are the most important kind of communities that exist to serve others. But we find that in serving others, we are ourselves served, right? Like my dad doesn't go 
to get anything out of it. But I can tell you as his daughter that he's grown and understood so much by putting himself in that position. And it's benefited the whole family. Mm. You know, we can, we can see that in our family. Are there any examples that you would like to share? My dad doesn't talk a lot about his childhood. It was not a really pleasant one. And so I just haven't heard a lot. And the whole first year that he was at the sharing place, he would call me every night as he left and talk to me for his whole drive home and tell me all of these stories about what he had been through. You know, Kendall, I didn't realize that that was traumatic. I thought it was fine. I thought I just needed to suck it up. Mm. I mean, I learned more about my dad in hearing him talk about what it made him think of driving home from the sharing place than I had in my whole life about his childhood. Wow. You know, I would have expected my dad to be really secretive and not discuss it and just kind of hold it all in. And now when he gets through a rough period of dealing with his dad, I laughed because my sister and I got comparing notes and we realized that every time my grandfather was being a pain in the butt, which is a lot, he was turning up at either my house or my sister's house and saying things like, can I play with the kids? Grandpa needs a visit. Mm. And so he's taken this pain from his childhood and he can't heal his relationship with his dad. There's not space for that anymore. But he could show up and sit with my kids and snuggle and he can listen to Adair talk about her daddy and he can say, Oh, let me tell you this obnoxious thing that your daddy did to me (laughs) because they're very different people. And my dad has some great stories about his first son-in-law getting on his nerves in some really funny ways. And he does that. Instead of, you know, my dad getting quiet and keeping it all in, he just, he turns up and he puts an arm around my daughter and he says, let's go fix something. Your daddy liked to fix things. Let's go fix something. Yeah. All of the story is so beautiful, but what sort of surfaces for me is his experience of realizing that he's not alone in terms of his childhood experiences have spurred him to create closer relationships with his family, with the most important people in his life. And it's just such a beautiful sort of growing of the sphere of influence of the sharing place, but just simply of the idea, right, of sharing with each other and Mm -hmm. not putting away our darkest emotions or our darkest moments, but bringing them into the light with other humans. It's really beautiful. Absolutely. And it's not life-changing, it's generational changing. Mm. You know, my daughter's going to grow up, is growing up with so many tools to help her understand her feelings and stories and perspectives that her grandparents didn't get, you know, like I have so much hope for the future and in what I see my daughter being able to navigate in a healthy way that her grandparents just didn't even have a choice to understand. Yeah. You know, one of the things about parenting that they say is that you generally find it easier to forgive your parents. Like every flaw or issue you have with your parents starts to go away as a parent, right? And you realize how hard it is. And that has been a big part of this process for me is realizing that the quote unquote mistakes that my parents made were about a lack of resources and a lack of knowledge. I can realize that it's not their fault and they they gave me the best, but I'm able to give my kids better because Adair is growing up with such a completely different understanding of mental health and emotional health that her parents or grandparents did. Yeah, because generational changing is world changing, or it can be. Absolutely. It has been such a privilege to get to talk to you, and I'm glad to get to talk to you for a few more minutes. We're going to close with a sort of questionnaire that's a little bit more rapid fire. Okay. So my first question for you is, what is your most treasured possession? I'm going to say two things, but I'll be quick about them. Great. No, no, no. I I love breaking the rules that way. (laughs) My pictures. 
I love being able to look back at my pictures and re-experience my life through those. My life as Isaac's wife, you know, my life as Adair's mom and my life now. And then the notes. I have every note either one of my husband's or my children have ever written me. Mm. And if my house was on fire, like my pictures are in the cloud, but if my house was on fire, I would be running for the little basket in my bedside table. Beautiful. So we were just talking about this a little bit, but where do you see hope? I see hope in connection. I look at the connections that I have and the connection that Adair has. And I'm thinking about Isaac's family. They're an integral part of our life now. And I'm thinking about the relationships that Adair has with her cousins that I have with my sister-in-law, that my second husband has with those people. Mm. That's hope. We can all pull on each other. And, and if we can rely on each other and on those connections, then we're going to be okay. Again, gorgeous. So beautifully said. Next, looking back, is there anything that could have prepared you for your experiences in China? You know, I wouldn't change anything. I'm a big believer in not having regrets. I was doing the best that I could with what I had, and mm. I feel good about that. I think the only thing that maybe could have changed is I wish I'd been in therapy. But I'm also really proud. I'm really, really proud of what I did. And I'm proud of how my family members acted. And I, yeah. I'm proud of how we navigated it all. I mean, there are things I would do differently, right? Right. But regrets are a waste of time. And I want to say that a big part of who I am is being married to Isaac. He was incredibly compassionate and kind. He had no ability to judge. He could always give people the benefit of the doubt. And being married to him was, it was a ride. It taught me so much about perspective and value. And a lot of who I am now is because of everything that he showed me and who he was. And it came from sitting with a notebook in the weeks after he died and writing those things down mm. and being determined to model them for my daughter because he wasn't here to do it. Beautiful. I'm almost speechless. Yeah, that's really lovely. So my next question is, where are you happiest? I am happiest outside in the mountains, mm. either completely alone or with my kids and my husband. I am a mountain girl at heart. There's a cabin that Isaac's great-grandparents built. It's about 20 minutes from here up in the forest. That place in particular, when I walk onto that property and I feel those trees and I hear the wind, I'm just, my soul is at peace. It sounds wonderful. So my last question is, do you have a motto? I do. My motto is, no feeling is final. It mm. comes from a, a Rilke quote, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. And that kept me going through some really dark, scary moments after Isaac died, knowing that I wouldn't feel like this forever. But it also, I find now, um, helps me stay present in the really good moments. These sweet, beautiful things don't last forever either. No feeling is final. Let everything happen to you. I love that quote. I love it so much. It's a reflection, again, of exactly as you said, being present to the change, if that makes sense. So not mm -hmm. trying to hold on to things that are good either, just kind of like letting the moments flow through you. Absolutely. I like to tell people that grief is like riding out a storm on the ocean. And if you're exhausting yourself by trying to fight against the wave and trying to swim against the tsunami, like it, it doesn't do you any good. You just have to ride it out and let it go and let it move through you. And, and it also means that sometimes the waters are calm and a tsunami comes out of nowhere, mm -hmm. right? And wrecks you. But again, if you can bob along and just feel the things, this too shall pass and hopefully take you somewhere cool. 
Absolutely. You've got a boat, you know, <laughs> you might as well travel the world. Uh-huh. Well, I think with that absolutely beautifully stated metaphor, I am done with my questions. Thank you for giving me a space to tell my whole story in kind of one setting. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing with us in the way that you did. I feel I feel molecularly changed by your conversation, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Love Takes Action. If you like what you hear, we invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, add your comments, and share with your friends and family. It's a chance to celebrate the voices of our inspiring guests and their wonderful stories. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or visit our website at newyorklife.com. Love Takes Action is brought to you by New York Life and is for general informational purposes only. References to any financial products or strategies are solely incidental and may not be construed as a solicitation. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the guests and hosts. They do not necessarily represent the opinions or viewpoints of New York Life Insurance Company or its subsidiaries.